1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians, Christian living in a pagan world. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just get their attention by waving to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can read the Word of God as well as listen to it. And will have double the impact. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word again this morning. And we thank you for its necessity in our life and all of the things that it cuts away, all of the things that it adds, all of the things that it reorients and readjusts in our lives, all of the things that it encourages in our lives, and all of the things that it warns us about as well, Lord. Big things, small things, but all of those things important to you and important to our walk with you and our desire to represent you properly in this world. And so we pray you bless this passage to our hearts this morning. Help us, Lord, to recognize the wisdom that is bound up in these verses. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to also see you and your nature and your character revealed here as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The epistle to the church at Corinth is what is known as a corrective epistle. It's correcting an awful lot of problems that were there in the church at Corinth. Sometimes I'll hear people and uh, they'll say something like, boy, we've got to get back to being like the early church. We've got to get back to being like the book of Acts. And typically, in their mind, they see something that they don't like about trends or characteristics of the 21st century church. And uh, somehow in their mind, back in the early church of the first century, the church was pure and without any kind of flaw or any kind of problem. And of course, as we come to know the Bible better and better, we come to realize that that certainly wasn't uh, the case. Many of the letters that make up much of the New Testament, they were corrective letters. Galatians addressed a move toward legalism among the churches in Galatia. The book of Hebrews addressed very much the same thing. 
As you turn elsewhere to Colossians, it was written to refute the influence of Gnosticism. First John uh, dealt with the same thing, false doctrine coming in uh, to the church. And on and on it goes related to the New Testament. And even a portion of the book of Philippians, this great book speaking of joy, there was a section of that uh, book where just it's almost like uninterrupted praise and thanksgiving that Paul gives to that letter. And yet there was within that church a, uh, a, a contention that was occurring between two prominent women within the church that was uh, threatening to spill over and now divide the church into camps and really make the unity of that church, uh, destroy that unity and, make, and mar their witness within the community. And so even there, he was forced to correct things. It really does take constant attention to keep a local church on course because a local church is a living thing. Uh, it is a changing thing. It is not an organization, it is an organism, as the old saying goes. If you have a factory that makes widgets, on Monday you close down for the weekend, on Monday you come in early, somebody walks into the factory, they head over to the breaker box or wherever the switches might be, and they begin to click on all of the switches, and everything turns on, all of the equipment begins to hum, the people that work there begin uh, to appear and, be and take up their particular uh, work uh, shift of the day, and it's off and running. And it's a relatively uh, uncomplicated work situation. I said, don't say that it is uncomplicated, but it's relatively uncomplicated because so much of the focus is it's mechanized, and you just have to keep the equipment running and everything else will then kind of take care of itself. But a local church is very different from that because it's supremely about people and not about things. And because it is supremely about people, it's living, it's dynamic, it's ever-changing, and it is very, very complicated. The church at Corinth was a church filled, we're told here, with contentions and with divisions. He mentions divisions in verse 10. And he's literally talking about schisms, factions within the church, sects within the church, uh, cliques that were in existence within the church, and, uh, and, these, and splits that were uh, occurring as a result of those factions or of those various camps. He mentions contentions in verse 11. And in this, these factions or these various uh, groups within the church, they had become so hostile toward one another that their conflict with one another was spilling over into open dispute and open arguing. If we were to think of the church at Corinth, if you think of a, a great sheet of linen, a piece of cloth, and if you take that piece of cloth and you begin to tear that piece of cloth, it is, it, that's the condition that it was in, where it has begun to be torn, but it hasn't yet been torn all the way in half. But these divisions and schisms now are beginning to 
a, a start of potentially tearing the church in half. It's on its way to what we would call today a church split, and it is aggressively headed in that direction. Now, the Greek word for contentions is the same word that's used by the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, where it describes the works of the flesh. These contentions came out of the flesh or the fallen nature of man. Even though we're Christians, and we have a divine nature within us. God has come in us by the Holy Spirit and given us a higher nature. We still have this fallen nature that if we pay attention to that or we give that the grace place of supremacy in our life, then we can be as ugly as Christians as ever we were before we became Christians. And so, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul said, now the works of the flesh are evident. In other, in other words, when you see the flesh, you know it's the flesh. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, and then the word contentions as it's used here, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice or make a lifestyle of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's important for us to realize that these divisions and these contentions weren't occurring because people were deeply spiritual or because they were following the leading of the Holy Spirit. These divisions and these contentions had their origin in people's flesh, in their selfish, angry, fallen nature. Now, I think it's important to realize before we go any further that not all division and contention within a church is necessarily carnal. Sometimes it's necessary. And sometimes division within a church or a contention within a church is not a mark of carnality, but is a mark of health within that particular local church. I think of, for example, if a church has to rise up and oppose those that are introducing false doctrine. That's not a carnal thing. That's not a fleshly thing. That's a mark of health in a local body and a mark of the fact that that is truly a spiritual group of, of people in a spiritual local church. Sometimes a church will have to stand up, and mainly it will be church leaders that will need to do that to make a stand against those that are profess to be Christians but are deliberately and willfully living a life of sin contrary to the teaching of the Word of God. And they want to engage in all of the sin of the world, and yet they want to continue to the, enjoy the blessings of local fellowship. And sometimes when that happens, uh, leadership is forced to step up and tell a person that they need to make a choice because a little leaven, the sin that they are practicing in their life brought into a local church can then infiltrate and destroy the church. Now, we're not talking about people that are struggling against sin. We all are engaged in a fight 
against sin. We're not talking about being perfect as a Christian, but where someone has gone into being like a libertine. They're just saying, I'm going to live whatever kind of life I want. I'm going to disobey God uh, to whatever degree I choose to, and yet I'm going to come to this church and I'm going to bring that influence into it and there's nothing that you can do about it. Well, there is something that can be done about it. And sometimes there'll be division and conflict that will occur in order to take care of that problem. But it is the sign of the fact that the church is healthy. Church discipline, these kind of things, it's the immune system of the local church or the body of Christ. And without an immune system, a church is going to die of whatever infection comes within it. And so, it's a sign of health. So, not all division, all contention is a negative thing or a mark of, of carnality. Sometimes it's a mark of great spirituality. Jude wrote in Jude chapter 1, and uh, it, well, there's only one chapter, isn't there? Verse 3, Beloved, while I, was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's a, a holy contention that is important in the body of Christ. He said, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord and God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The contention that he's talking about here at Corinth wasn't spiritual, but it was carnal. And the cause of their division and their contention is revealed to us in verse 12. These cliques or these sects had developed within the church, and they had formed based upon the style and the personality of various leaders within the body of Christ, or their, their personality, or their gifting within uh, the body of Christ. Different leaders, different teachers. We talk sometimes today um, in a negative fashion of how the cult of personality has taken over the world. I just, I don't want to know one thing about the Kardashians. I'm sad I know their name. I don't want to know one more thing about Lindsay Lohan. Not because I don't care about her, it's just hard to watch a continual train wreck without being able to help a person firsthand. But there's this cult of personality. People are so hungry for heroes, or maybe our lives have become so shallow that we, and we have such an inferiority complex about our lives that we think that, you know, being so heavily engaged in the lives and following these other people and tweeting and following and all this kind of stuff that it gives meaning and significance to our lives. But there is a cult of personality that's very real today. And, and it is something that can invade the church. And sometimes we think of that, the cult of personality as being a relatively new development. It's not new at all. It's as old as mankind. And the cult of personality, sometimes people will criticize, even within Christianity, how 
people will follow with such devotion certain teachers or certain leaders. They say, well, the cult of personality has entered into the church and this is a new phenomenon. It isn't at all. It's as old as the church at Corinth. It's exactly what was happening there. It appears that in the church there were four rival cliques. There was one group that said, I am of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And so this was those who followed the Apostle Paul supremely or they liked the Apostle Paul best. And so here is Paul, probably the purest teacher of those that he's being compared to in this list, of course, except for Christ. And, and so you have this man who was this pure teacher with this personality that was, could run through a brick wall. All he needed to do was see a need where the gospel hadn't gone yet into the world, and he would take it there. And, that, and his life, his personality, his calling was very attractive to a certain kind of person. And say, so these people say, we like Paul the best. And then there were others who said, I am of Apollos. And those that have followed Apollos, so they liked Apollos best. Apollos was perhaps the greatest order recorded in the early church. I mean, this guy could really, really speak. And he was a man of content as well, but he was able to communicate the content in a way that could hold an audience in a way that very few people possess. Nobody ever fell asleep or thought of Costco <laughs> or lunch or brunch when Apollos was preaching. I am no Apollos. But this, others looked and said, look at this charismatic personality, the way that he handles the Word of God, the great speaker that he is, I am of Apollos. And then others said, I am of Cephas. And Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. They're talking about the Apostle Peter. They like the Apostle Peter best. And maybe some of them thought, well, you know, Paul's a kind of a Johnny-come-lately. I like to follow an apostle that was there with Jesus. For the three and a half years, he had a personal history with Jesus. And maybe and probably Peter represented kind of the conservative element of Christianity at the time in terms of the leadership. You never knew what Paul was going to do. You never knew where the Holy Spirit was going to take him. Was he going to be in Galatia? Was he going to be in Asia Minor? Was he going to be in Jerusalem? Where was he going to be? The, blown by the Holy Spirit. And yet here is this Peter, uh, slower than Paul to adopt change, more conservative, a little more old school, and so some people liked him better by virtue of their personality. And then others said, I am of Christ. You say, what could be wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. Always commendable if a person looks and says, Listen, I follow Christ over any man. We should always follow Christ over any man. That's an obvious statement. But that's not what Paul's dealing with here. Somehow, they had become, this group that says, I follow Christ, they had become just as uh, much a sect or sectarian as the other group, just as divisive as the other three. And I think that probably, m my guess would be that uh, those that formed this particular group were kind of unwilling to speak favorably of any man. 
whatever his gifting or his calling or his accomplishments, and they, they wouldn't speak glowingly of any servant of the Lord or even any praiseworthy kind of way for fear of robbing Christ of some of his glory. And so uh, sometimes you can find this in a person where it can be healthy to a point, but then uh, they can then in turn show disrespect to leaders that God has called into a church. They're trying too hard to follow Christ. And so they follow Christ and they feel that somehow in following Christ, they have to be disrespectful or always in their interaction with church leaders to knock them down a, a peg or two to make them realize that, listen, buddy, I don't think of you as anything more special than my next door neighbor. Well, that's fine because I don't think of myself as more <laughs> better than your next door neighbor. But you don't have to carry that chip on your shoulder that way. And they carry a chip on their shoulder in, in that way. And that's an unhealthy place to go within the body of Christ. The Bible declares in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul wrote and he said, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So this is the great division that was going on in the church. And Paul was made aware of it by a report from the household of Chloe, we're told. In other words, this is a situation that was now dominating the church. This was something that was not a tempest in a teacup, some little tiny thing that was off in the corner in the local church. This was now beginning to dominate the church, and it was beginning to become well known that the church was dividing in this kind of a way. And so those of Chloe's household informed Paul, hey, we've got a problem over here, and they realized that Paul had invested 18 months of his life in the establishment of this church, so who better to bring in to get this thing righted before it tears completely in half or tears into four pieces? Churches can do more than split one way. They can split multiple ways. I really have great respect for Chloe's and his household and all of this. He saw the problems, and he made the problem known to Paul. Paul was the right person to inform because Paul was a part of the solution. It is never gossip or rumor-mongering when I inform someone of a situation if that someone is a part of the solution to the problem. It is only when I talk with a person about a situation and inform them of circumstances and people and this and that, and they are not a part of the solution, that is rumor-mongering and that is uh, uh, gossip that is, is going on. And so we should never, ever pass on any news about anyone unless we are willing to be quoted in the matter. And we noticed that Chloe was willing to be quoted uh, in that, it didn't like send an anonymous letter 
to Paul and said, listen, you ought to know this and check this into it, sign the big question mark, you know, or Z, Zorro, or something. He was willing to say, you need to know about this, and I stand behind it, and when you address it, you can use my name. Through the years, not often, but through the years, I've occasionally uh, received a letter from someone trying to make me aware of um, a situation in somebody's life that's going on in the church, and maybe they've done this or that or whatever it might be, and they send it to me, and then they don't sign it. And it gives me very, very little to work with in a situation like that because I can't confirm the facts. I can't I don't know who to talk to. And if a person isn't willing to stand behind what it is that they're saying, then there's not much a person can do with that information. And so here's this great thing that Chloe does. He's willing to risk relationships. He's willing to risk uh, his own reputation. He's willing uh, even to be, uh, when a church gets like this, I mean, everybody's fired up about this camp. I mean, your name can become mud if you take the kind of step that he takes to protect it, and sometimes it's not till months and years later that people will then appreciate the kind of person that was willing to do that. So he takes a big risk, and, and he is to be commended for that. Chloe's, this Chloe, but then Chloe's in their household that do the same even today. Now the solution to this rift that's going on Paul tells them in verse 10, is to speak the same thing. In other words, Paul is telling them to look at all of the things that they have because of Christ, and then to focus on those things, to focus on those blessings, to talk about those things. You look at the body of Christ. Pastor Jonathan opened us up in prayer, and it was just wonderful. I had, during that prayer, I took a trip around the world thinking about all of the different places where the Lord is being worshipped today. On every continent, in every country, in every conceivable building, every kind of person wearing every kind of apparel, with every kind of skin color and personality and likes and dislikes, the unbelievable diversity within the body of Christ. It's astonishing, even within a local church, how in the world do you keep this kind of diversity together? You, you know, you take those magnets when you're a kid and you put the common poles together and they push apart and you put a church of three together, much less you get up to 50 or 100 or into the hundreds and there's an awful lot that would absolutely cause a church like this to explode in hundreds of different directions. And why doesn't it? Why doesn't that happen? Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's also taking heed to what Paul has said here in verse 10, and that is to speak the same thing, to remember, despite all of our diversity and all of our differences, to think about and to meditate upon all of the things that God has given to us to unite us. And God in His wisdom and in His omnipotence, His great power, He has provided us with truths and realities that are so great 
that they're even able to keep the diversity of all mankind in fellowship with one another, those that call upon the name of the Lord. Paul wrote specifically about this in Ephesians chapter 4. And he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, in all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, how do we do that? He said, there's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one, 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 one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And he stops them and he says, now think about, yes, we know all about the diversity. We know how different your personalities are. We know that you like certain people more than other people. We know all of these things about the body of Christ and a local church and all around the world. But he says, think about the things that unite us. We have a common Savior, Jesus. We have a common salvation. God has made us into one body, the body of Christ. We share the same heavenly Father. We've been made a part of the same family, God's family. We're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We submit with great joy to the same book, the Bible. We have the same hope and confidence of heaven after this life. And on and on it goes. These things that God has given us, that the things that hold us together are infinitely greater than the things that would divide us. And Paul said, give some thought to those things and then speak about those things. Not what divides you. Not personal preferences. And then in verse 10 he said, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And that phrase, joined together, it's a medical word that was used for the knitting together of bones that had been fractured or putting a dislocated joint back into place. And so Paul is essentially telling the church to get back together, make up your differences, start to heal, start working together again. And he told them how to do it by having the same mind the same mind of, of being focused on, wait a second, how did we get here? How did we ever elevate the following of these teachers and divide? The teachers aren't at fault. How did we ever put them into this kind of a place in our own lives that they became more important to us than the unity of the body of Christ? And so, he tells them, have the same mind in correcting this problem. And he told them, second, that they needed to have the same judgment. They all needed to have the same conviction. We got a problem here. And this is not a good problem here. We need to make some changes here and then to make that change. And Paul was telling them to, in essence, to get this problem solved once and for all. And they were to do so, we're told in verse 10, he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To do so out of a love for Jesus, to do so out of a respect and a reverence for Jesus. And in order to be in line with his character and with his nature, in order to have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? What is 
the character of Christ concerning unity in his body. Or we don't have to guess. Very, very holy ground, John chapter 17. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prays it to the Father on the night before his crucifixion. Talk about stuff distilled down to the very most important things to him. He prayed to the Father and he said, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, speaking of us as disciples. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are one, as Father and Son are one. Wow, that's quite a unity. He went on to say in that prayer, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's talking about us in this room that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's the degree again. That they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And what is true of a local church, the importance of this unity this importance of acceptance of one another and, and all is also true of the whole body of Christ. There's no need to, to divide into cliques or into factions or to choose one group over another in the body of Christ and all of its diversity. The whole body of Christ belongs to your heavenly Father. Every church that follows him belongs to you. Not one. They all belong to you. They all exist for your good and for your edification. You don't have to shortchange yourself and say, I will only receive from this group or I'll only learn from this group. The whole body of Christ is yours, and yours to enjoy, and yours as well to support the responsibility of it. I am very, very thankful for the whole body of Christ in Modesto, not just for Calvary Chapel of Modesto. I pray for God to bless Calvary Chapel of Modesto, but I pray for him to bless the whole body of Christ. I don't think that anyone that attends this church. I mean, I mean, we may deal with doctrines or false teaching or these kind of things, but I don't think I have ever, not certainly not willingly, ever tried to make a person feel that if you come to this church, you can't have anything to do with any other Christian that goes to another church or that we're in some way intrinsically superior to them or something like that or to say you've got to cut off from the rest of the body of Christ to be true or to loyal to this part of the body of Christ. We are a part of the body of Christ, a small part of it. In just this little old one city in the whole wide world that we live in, the city of Modesto. 
I'll tell you, I want Modesto to have strong, God-centered, Bible-centered, Holy Spirit-led Assembly of God churches and Baptist churches and denominational churches and non-denominational churches. The fact of the matter is we can be for the success and the blessing of everyone. It really isn't a competition, but the diversity of churches are necessary. They are complementary. No one church in a given community, much less in the whole world, is right for everyone. It just isn't. There are different personalities. People relate to God on a lot of different ways. Some people are more emotional than other people. They will want a more emotional church. Some people desire and require more content in their relationship with the Lord and their growth and understanding of of the Lord and all of the emotion and all the rest will follow but it all begins for them there and they will want to be in a very strong teaching church you have some people that they really do like the smells and the bells and the whistles and the traditions and everything is the same every week and and so they'll love the liturgical church and they just sit there and they just relate to God in that environment in a way that they couldn't anywhere else there's a lot of diversity in people and in how they uh, grow in their relationship with God and relate to God. And so there's diversity within the churches as a result of that. And that's why God takes and He establishes a lot of different churches within, uh, within a community. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great Bible teachers of the last century, Westminster Chapel in, in London, he wrote and he said, I have found that the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational he is. Now, for a certain person, that can sting, but it doesn't change the fact that it's the truth. I have found that the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational that he is. And it's true. Why is it true? Because Jesus said as much. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, and John interrupted him and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus said to him, Don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. That's the mind of Christ, and that is to have the mind of Christ. The whole body of Christ is our family. Every church, every ministry belongs to God. It's all ours to enjoy. We don't have to pick or choose, much less consider some other portion of the body of Christ lesser or worse yet, an enemy of some kind. Let me close with a couple of applications. I want us to consider for a moment the terrible damage that contentions and divisions cause. Number one, to those Christians within a local church. A church is supposed to be a place of peace for God's people. 
For many Christians, it is the only peaceful environment they know in a week. And that's a sobering thing to think about, especially for fighters and people who are contentious by nature. And to realize if the local church turns into a war or an unpeaceful place, then where in the world are people going to go to find peace? Something different, an escape from the war and the conflict and the division that makes up the world all around us. And these kind of contentions and divisions that Paul's addressing here, they make the church as unpeaceful as the world. And additionally, once a church becomes known for its camps or being a place of factions or cliques or parties or infighting or contention or division, it is through in terms of impacting the world for God. It's over for that church. And you know why it's over? Because ultimately the fight, the contention, will become the focus of the church. It's always the way. The fire will either be put out and the issue solved, or it will consume that local church. It'll take all of the attention of the people in the church off of God, off of loving one another, off of taking the gospel to a lost world, and everyone's attention will now be fixed upon the fight and the power struggle that's going on within the church. Who's winning? Who's losing? Who said what this week? Who said what in response to what God said about who said what? And the division ends up using all of the oxygen in the church. And then what happens is ultimately those who are truly spiritual within the church, they will ultimately leave. They come to church to grow in a relationship with God. They come in order to make an impact for God and building up the body of Christ. They come to be further equipped to reach their friends and their family members and their loved ones in the world with the gospel, to be equipped how to do that. And that's their desire for coming to a church, and that's the desire of a spiritual person. And so pretty soon when all, everything begins to change and, and, and it takes this kind of a conflict focus, they'll leave that church for another church that cares about what is truly spiritual. And then you are left with a purely carnal church at that point. The only people left are those who love to fight, and that church will die. It will die if it doesn't repent, as Paul is calling on this church at Corinth to repent. It's a terrible device that the, devil, that the devil uses and that I think every church can be prone to if we're not watchful. And that's why the warning is here in the Bible. I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why God in His Word gives such strong exhortations toward unity among His people. And, uh, and to refrain from this kind of carnal fighting that goes on. I think one of the strongest ones is found in Proverbs chapter 6. This one just scares me. It's so strong. So I want you frightened as well. So let me read it to you. 
Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Wow. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that are swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies. And then here it is. And he who soweth discord among the brethren. He puts that in the list. I think that a church split is one of the most deeply painful things a Christian will ever experience if they're forced to experience it. Just to get an idea, how many of you in this room have been through a church split? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand high so we can see. You see, it's a, it's a today problem. It's not a 2,000-year-ago problem. I've been through the same thing. I've seen it. Not with the church that I was pastoring by the grace of God, but I've never seen anything more painful than to watch a body of Christians turn on one another and what gets said and what gets done and the regret that can follow people for the rest of their lives. I'll tell you, it's to be avoided at all costs. This damage that contentions and divisions cause, it not only damages the local church where it occurs, but it then it does damage to the rest of the body of Christ because the reputation of every Christian is tied up in the reputation of every other Christian. And the world doesn't know better than to look and say, well, that church is just off base, it's carnal, it's fleshly, that's ridiculous, there's no way that that should be going on. There's plenty of other churches where that isn't happening. They just look at that and they see and they say, well, they're all like that. And so we all get painted when this kind of thing occurs. It also does great damage to our witness before the world because it makes a church very unattractive to the unsaved world. And people think to themselves, listen, I've got enough conflict, enough drama in my life already. I've got enough fighting and wars and division going on in my life. I'm certainly not going to go to a church to add to it, but only go to a church to escape it in some way. And when a church becomes like what it had become at Corinth, it has a way of becoming very, very widely known, doesn't it? That just gives people that are looking for a reason to reject Christianity or going to a church an excuse that they shouldn't be provided with. That division and what goes on in a church that's experiencing a split like that, that gets carnal in that way, that never stays just between the Christians as damaging as that is alone. But everybody's got unsafe family and friends, and sometimes it moves out into the entire community and it provides people with the excuses, I said, that should never be provided to them. Oh, the church, it's no different than anything else. I won't have anything to do with it. And worst of all, the greatest damage is the damage that's done to the reputation of Jesus, because this kind of thing looks nothing like him. 
And yet that's how he is represented so often before the world. This kind of thing is a million miles away from his heart and his desire for the local church. And Jesus has a right for what bears his name, that is Christianity, to properly reflect him in the church and in the world. And this can only happen as we interact with one another in love and in grace. And I think it's important to be reminded concerning every other member of the body of Christ. None of us is perfect. God is perfect. The rest of us are all growing, and we will need to have grace for one another while we do grow. And a love that comes from Christ for the rest of the body of Christ. I think of some of the blogs today that are so heavily followed. I think of some of what is called discernment ministry today. That's what I'm told that they're called. They have these websites. And woe unto you if you ever make a mistake because they will lynch you on that website. And I think to myself, has, is this what it's turned into? Is this what it's become in the 30 years since I first began as a pastor that nobody can make a mistake anymore? Nobody can be taken by God after we've made a dumb decision or said a dumb thing and be taken into the woodshed, just us and the Lord, and get it all worked out and be the better for it and learn a lesson for the rest of our life, that it doesn't have to then travel around the west, rest of the world or that somehow we've become a part of mystery Babylon because of the mistake that we made. I think it's unhealthy. And I see a, the contention that is as strongly rebuked in a local church is just as dangerous, maybe more so, more so, because of the scope of the influence when it's handled on a national level and an international level and irresponsibly in this kind of way. I don't speak of all discernment ministries, just some of them. I remember 28 years ago when we, God called us here and we started the church out of obedience to the Lord and we'd been riding back and forth between Napa and here for about a year and a half before we moved to Modesto. And on Sunday nights, our services were communion services and afterglows. That's what they were. We later made them a Bible study because we had people coming to the church on Sunday night because their church didn't have a Sunday night. They would come in and maybe they were expecting a, a, a Bible study. It was an afterglow. Not everybody was on the same page related to some of that, and so it wasn't the greatest. It became a, a, a more highly involved thing. And so we shifted the afterglows into a different environment. But for a long time, we did it on Sunday nights. And you know what we did? We lit candles at them all over the sanctuary during those services. And it was almost laughable to me a handful of years ago that it got to the place that if you lit a candle in a Protestant church, you were going Catholic or you were going emergent. 
And I thought to myself, listen, in terms of doctrine and all of these things and conservative, I'm to the right of Attila the Hun. But I like candles. And we lit candles that probably would have killed us 28 years ago for lighting candles. And I'll tell you what, I'll light candles if I want tonight. How do you like that? So now we're going to get a division, aren't we? See how it all starts. And it wasn't because we were probably a part of Rome or, or we were becoming a part of the emergent church or we were, you know, becoming influenced by the Trilaterals Commission or we thought Elvis was still alive. We just liked candles and we lit the candles in the evening service. And the people that look and say, X always turns into Y, X always means Y. I don't like it. Some of it has to happen because it's dealing with spiritual things, and it's a sign of health in the body of Christ. But a lot of what I, don't, what I see today, I don't like because it falls into this category, and it's creating a war, an unnecessary war, between Christians. Every local church faces many, many challenges to its effectiveness, to its very existence. And one of those many things is the temptation to cannibalize itself through this carnal, fleshly contention and division. And this kind of thing never reflects the heart or the desire of Jesus. And if you sit here this morning, and that's your spirit, and that is something that you are tapped into. I am not addressing any local problem in this church, by the way. Thank you, Lord, for the peace that we've known for 30 years here. But if that's your attitude toward the rest of the body of Christ, or an attitude even within embryonic in this church, or other churches within the community that are striving hard to follow God and be true to His Word and the leading of the Holy Spirit, this is something to really allow to search your heart and to remove any carnal spirit of, of, of division or contention. And those of you who have been the victim of this kind of thing, you say, I vowed 20 years ago to never ever set foot in a church again after I saw how Christians treated one another, and I'm a Christian. But then I got too lonely, and I took the chance again. Well, good for you. Good for you for doing so. Will you keep your eyes on the Lord? And God will work that experience together for good in your life to be an influence as a fire extinguisher for allowing that to happen in any small group that you're a part of or any local church that God makes you a part of. You'll be in healthy influence as a result of it. And if you're not a Christian here yet this morning, and you've been turned off to Christianity because of this kind of thing, you need to know that Jesus doesn't like it any more than you like it. But you can never use that as an excuse to reject Him. Because you still need to be forgiven of your sins. You still must put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus never told you to put your eyes on anyone other than him for those things. And so don't let that ever stop you.
from becoming a Christian. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, I am the true and faithful witness. He alone is the true and faithful witness of Christianity. You must make your decision concerning your eternity in Christ based upon Christ alone. And you'll never find a fault in him. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to become a Christian today. It's the most important decision you'll make in your life because it affects all of this life and all of the life to come. Choose Christ today. They'll love to serve you in praying and inviting the Lord into your heart today. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for all that it addresses. And thank you, Lord, for this very simple, very clear, but very, very needed instruction in this vital area of the church. Let it do its full work, Lord. Let that work continue on into the rest of the morning and the rest of the afternoon and day and week if necessary until each of our hearts has the heart, Jesus, that you have for the rest of your body. We pray, Lord, that by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would protect any of us from ever being the source of this kind of carnal contention and division and the damage and the destruction that it brings to your body and to your reputation. Use this time in your word toward that end, Lord. And we pray and we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.